Now, I'm not going to read to you our section in Matthew just yet because we're going to finish up where we left off last week. If you remember last week, we looked at the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross and we kind of went through them all. And we ended with the seventh one where he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That was in Luke 23, verse 46. What I want to show you, though, though, is as Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, his fellowship with the Father is restored. He's never been separated from God in the sense that he was no longer God. God is always God. But there's a fellowship between the Son and the Father that was broken during that time. All through Jesus' life, he called God his Father. But during those horrific three hours, we see him in agony calling out to God. Now we see the fellowship when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now we see the fellowship is restored. And Jesus is actually receiving something he prayed for in the garden right before the cross. Go with me to John chapter 17 and look at verses 1 through 5. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent now I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here he says, it's time. It's time for me to go to the cross. May you be glorified with what I do as I humble myself to the plan you have. But then he prayed at the very end of this, glorify now me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's excited about being able to go back into that presence of God in, in, in his flesh, as you will know through his resurrection, we'll deal with next week, and through the Spirit. Now, because Jesus has gone to the Father on our behalf, we too can be sure that we will go to the Father when we die. I want you to know that. And that's one thing that's going to, I want to take some time to kind of deal with. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. Because Jesus went to the Father on our behalf, we have confidence to know that when we die, we will go immediately to be with the Lord. And we're going to talk about that from a bunch of different angles tonight. So go to Hebrews 6 and look at verses 13 through 20. In Hebrews 6, verse 13, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest. That's going to be important later. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here he says, look, God made a promise. And when God makes a promise, he's got no one greater than himself to swear by. And so he swears by himself. And when God, can't, who can't lie, makes you a promise, you can hang on to that promise. And that promise is that if you put your faith in his provision for your sin through Jesus Christ, Christ, you are guaranteed heaven. 
I'm just going to tell you something, folks, and I've touched on this in times past. I want you to hear me again. I'm not saying that we need to be stupid in this day and age and go and kiss everybody. But I'm going to tell you this. If we really understand who we are in Christ and what his word actually says, we should not be walking around fearful during COVID as Christians. Again, please don't hear me say that you're not supposed to wear a mask or anything like that. I'm not going down that road. But what I want you to hear is this. Does the Bible not say that the day of your birth and the day of your death were already preordained before the Bible says he said that all the days, Psalm 139, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Didn't Jesus say that who of you by worrying can add one single hour to your life? Didn't he say that? Well, did COVID change it? One of the greatest opportunities we have in this world where everybody's freaking out. And now they're talking about maybe two masks. Don't get me started. <laughs> What a great opportunity we have to look people in the eye and say, COVID's real. And if I get it, and if it kills me, I get to go be with Jesus. I get to go be with Jesus. Go real quickly with me to Philippians chapter 1. Look at verses 19 through 23. Paul's sitting in prison at this time, and he doesn't know how this imprisonment is going to play out at the moment that he begins to write this. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, he says this. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Don't assume that you know what that means, because you're about to find out. Deliverance to him is either living or dying. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's far better. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. But then he goes on and says, but to stay in the flesh will be helpful for you and your progress in the faith. And I feel like the Spirit's telling me I'm going to stay in the body for a while. But listen to what he said. Here he goes. He was sitting in a prison, not sure if he's going to live or die. And he said, either way is good. I'm tired of going around and talking to Christians and saying, how you doing? And they'll say, well, at least I'm on this side of the dirt. The other side's better. <laughs> Folks, let me just say something to you. We have a sure anchor for the soul because Jesus has gone to the Father on our behalf and he has guaranteed eternal life for all who would believe in him. If you die, well, how does the, body, the Bible put it? Paul puts it, absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. Jesus himself made a promise to his disciples. Listen closely because it's a picture of the rapture. In John chapter 14, he said, in my father's house, listen to the context, in my father's house, there's many rooms. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you'll be with me where I am. Jesus said, look, if you die, I'm going to come get you. I'm going to take you to be with me where I am. Now, because of that, I want to touch on a couple of things that, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and today you would be, in, be with me in paradise kind of helps us understand, because there's some bad teaching out there in sections of Christianity. There are some denominations that teach that the, there's a thing called soul sleep. Some of you may not have ever heard about it. Others of you might know what I'm talking about. But there are some, there are older denominations now. Some of the newer ones aren't really going there anymore. But the older denominations used to teach that when people died, even in the Lord, they were bodies, uh, their souls would go into a sleep. 
until the final resurrection. Because as you know, and maybe you don't, whenever the Bible describes someone who's died in the Lord, they call them as they've fallen asleep. And so they teach that there's a soul sleep. But the scripture actually shows that, what did Jesus say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And what did he say to the thief on the cross? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, for the sake of time, because we've got a lot to cover tonight to finish Matthew 27, so we can be at 28 next week. Let me just kind of remind you of a couple of other things. Do you remember when Jesus was transfigured in Matthew 17, when we studied back in Matthew 17 and how his whole body glowed? Who showed up on the mountain there with him? Moses and Elijah. And if you go and look at Luke's account, Luke says that they were discussing with Jesus the things that must soon take place in Jerusalem. Sounds like they knew what was going on on the earth, don't they? They didn't sound groggy. And what did Jesus already say we looked at last week about Abraham? He said, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And they knew what he was saying. They were, You're 50, not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? That's when he said, before Abraham was born, I am. But he talks about how Abraham was seeing what was going on. We're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the Hebrew writer says. Folks, when you die, if you're in Christ, you immediately go to be with the Lord. If you're apart from Christ, you go to a place of torment, which is a place of holding that the Bible calls Hades. Ultimately, everyone that goes to Hades will be brought out of Hades and stand before the great white throne judgment. And from there, they'll be cast into the lake of fire. But for those of us who are in Christ, well, Jesus said it in John chapter 11, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And he who lives and believes in me will live even though he dies. Bodily, our bodies are going to die one day if the rapture didn't happen before that. And if we're in Christ, we have an anchor for the soul. We will get to go be with him right then. There's another doctrine, though, that also needs to be kind of dealt with. Some of you might know this one more because you might have heard this one. Some of you might have grown up with the Apostles' Creed. Did anybody grow up saying the Apostles' Creed? If you go back and you look at the Apostles' Creed, or if you try to remember repeating it, it talks about how Jesus died and then he descended into hell. And then three days later rose from the dead. Isn't that what it says? Jesus didn't descend into hell and three days later rise from the dead. Where did he go when he died on the cross? Did he go to hell? He went straight to the presence of God. The scriptures even say that. Listen closely. What did he say again? Today you'll be with me in paradise. And on top of that, he also said, remember the Greek word we looked at last time? To telestai? It's finished. If Jesus still had to suffer in hell for three days, it wasn't finished. No, it was finished. But people say, say well, Jim, what about that passage in Peter where it talks about he went and preached to the spirits in prison? I got no problem with that. We don't know when he did it or how he did it, but the Bible says at some point he went and preached through, his, through the spirit to those spirits that were in prison and pretty much proclaimed victory. But he didn't go and suffer in hell for three days, folks, and then rise from the dead. He went straight into the presence of the Father. That's an encouragement for you and I. Now, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke all give evidence of a profound miracle that God did to prove that Jesus had opened a way to God. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 27 and look at verses 50 through 54. Matthew 27 verses 50 through 54. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to have you read with me, but if you want to look right down and double check me, Luke 23 Verses 44 through 49, Luke 23, 44 through 49, and Mark 15, 33 through 39. Mark 15, 33 through 39 also record the temple being, uh, the veil in the temple being torn. Matthew's the only one that deals with these bodies coming up out of their graves at his resurrection. We'll come back to that in a second. We'll deal with that in a little bit. But for right now, let's talk about the fact that at the moment Jesus died and the price was paid and he went to the Father, the veil in the temple, which separated the holy place from the most holy place, was torn from the top to the bottom. Now, you got to understand how big of a deal this is. First off, the top was way, way high in the air. It was a tall, tall veil. You couldn't just reach up there and reach it. Second of all, even if you could reach it, there was no way you were ripping it because it literally was almost this thick. The veil was about this thick and it was torn from the top to the bottom. In other words, God said, the way into my presence has now been made through the death of his son. By the way, before the veil was torn, who was the only one allowed into the Holy of Holies, the high priest and only once a year and not without blood. He had to have blood to be able to. And only, only, but who could go in again? Who was it again? The high priest. Go to Hebrews chapter nine. Remember how we finished in Hebrews six about how Jesus has become a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Go to Hebrews chapter nine. Now look at verses 11 through 14. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus became the high priest that went into the presence of the Father with his own blood. And when he did that, as he died on the cross and he went straight into the true temple of God, where God actually is. The one on the earth, you realize, was just a, temp a, a temporary picture. The tabernacle was to be made in a certain way to show. And then the temple was a permanent structure. But they were all duplicates, if you will, of the true one that's in heaven, not made with hands. And Jesus went in as our high priest with his own blood. And the moment he did that, the father ripped the veil saying, you can go straight into the temple now, and you can go straight into the presence of God. That way has been made, no, made now. Don't you know the scripture says that we have boldness now to enter into the presence of God and approach the throne? I've actually wondered, by the way, over the years, and I've done the research, and I can't find any evidence of this. I know it happened, but no one's talking about it. 
the Jews must have put the veil back. Because, you know, the Jews didn't believe. There's no way they were going to leave it open because, I mean, good grief, you can't go anywhere near there. They must have put the veil back in some way. I don't know if they hired some ladies to stitch it up. I don't know what they did. But the interesting thing is, if it, by the way, any of you would like to do any research and you would like to help me out, that'd be great. I've done research. I've dug. I've looked not only, in, of course, it's not evidenced in the scriptures of what they did after this, but also in other historic writings of that time. I can't find where it ever says what the Jews did, but they went back on with their sacrifices for a while. How stupid would it be when God has removed the veil for you to put it back? They still had a veil over their eyes. They still have a veil over their eyes. Very good. But before you start thinking the Jews are stupid, be careful. I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you, and I want to show hands and I want honesty here, have ever thought after salvation that when you did some things you weren't too proud of, there are some things you needed to do to get right with God again? In essence, he's removed the veil. Did you, did you hear what we just read? He, he said, let me read it to you again. He said, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I don't know if any of us can fully grasp the fact that we have not only been forgiven, we're being sanctified, we have the access to the Father. And even though we sin, we have an advocate who's already interceding on our behalf and he wants us to go boldly. He wants us to not put up a veil ourselves and say, as soon as I do a few acts of penance or as soon as I read my Bible for a week and then I'll come talk to you. We all think there's something we have to do because we're trying to, we think we're, the, the, fellowship, or the, the relationship is broken. Folks, enjoy the fact that Jesus has paved once and for all your way to the Father. Now, are there some things that he wants to work with us on? Sure. Will a loving Father kind of correct you and discipline you in some areas? Sure. But he'll never say, you can't come into my presence. People always say, well, holy God can have sin in his presence. You ever heard that? Did you ever notice that the Bible says that Satan is accusing us day and night in his presence? Haven't you read the book of Job in chapter 1 and chapter 2? How Satan, the angels appeared before God and Satan came with them? How much more? If Satan's allowed to be in his presence, how much more will those of us who have been washed clean through the blood of his own son be able to go boldly to the Father? Folks, don't be brash and think, well, I don't care. You don't care what I do. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to hang out with Jesus. No, he takes sin seriously and he's a loving father. But at the same time, don't ever think that you have to do things uh, that kind of clear your conscience from dead works. Don't feel like there's anything you have to do to be made right with God. Just acknowledge your sin. Say, you know what? That's why you died for me. Let's let's get going again <laughs> and let's enjoy the relationship that you have with him. Now, we don't know much also about these people who rose from the dead at Jesus' resurrection and appeared to many. Matthew's the only one who records this. I'm going to throw this out, though, to you. If they stayed alive and around on the earth for a while, I think we would have some writings and some evidence about that. I think personally, this is a picture of what God's going to do at the rapture. Because as you know, at the rapture of the church, God's going to bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 
and their body's going to come up out of the ground, and we who are alive are going to be caught up and go be with the Lord. And at the time of Jesus' resurrection, we don't know much more about this than this. At the time of Jesus' resurrection, some saints, really well-known godly people from the Old Testament, if you will, their bodies came up out of the tombs that they were in, and they got up and they walked around and visited folks in Jerusalem for a little while, and they must have then gone back to be with the Lord. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verses 13 through 18. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians, But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. There's that term that's caused people to misunderstand. That, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, listen, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, this is not the second coming where Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom on the earth. This is actually going to happen prior to the second coming at the end of the church age. Before that last period of the time of Jacob's trouble, what we know as the tribulation period, there's a lot of scriptures that show that the church won't be here when that tribulation period happens. God made a promise to all the churches in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's about to come on to the whole earth to try them. Uh, we also know that if you look at the scriptures, before God ever brought final judgment on a city or the world, he always removed his righteous ones beforehand, did he not? Remember in Sodom and Gomorrah, before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he removed the righteous ones. Now, an interesting conversation happened between Abraham and God, though, in Genesis 18, prior to Sodom and Gomorrah, where Abraham says this about God. He goes, God, far be it from you to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. That's not who you are. That's not how you would do things. And God pretty much says, you're right. You know me well. I won't do that. But what if there's so many righteous? If there's that many righteous people there, I won't destroy the city. And as you know, Abraham and he had this back and forth conversation. Abraham knows how many family members he thinks are there, and he's getting the number down to that number. But here's the deal. Listen to what God said. If there are righteous people there, I won't destroy the city. What did he do with the righteous? He removed them before the judgment came. Now, some people say, wait a minute, Jim. No one in his family weren't raptured. They had to go through the judgment. Actually, they really didn't. Think about what happened to Noah and his family. They were brought above all that happened on the earth. They were sealed in. The ark represents Christ. And they were sealed and protected above all that. And then they came back to the earth after it had been reworked to start over. That's what's going to happen to us. The Bible is very clear that the church is going to be raptured, taken to be with him. Remember, we just read it. Those who are already fallen asleep in him, they're already with him. Just like Abraham and Moses and all those guys, they're going to come with him when he comes. Their bodies are going to come out of the ground. They're going to come. They're going to go back to be with the Lord. We who are alive are going to be caught up and go with him. Doesn't that sound like John 14? I'm going to come back and get you, take you to be with me where I am. 
There's a judgment that's coming on the whole world, and it's coming. Between now and then, it might get a little bumpy for us Christians, and that's why I'm excited about our study of Daniel. There's some things we need to learn about how to live in this world until that day. But don't think for a second that when God brings the final judgment on the earth, He's going to wipe out the Christians along with the rest of the world. His scripture clearly says that's not who He is or how He does things. Now, let's go and look at our section for tonight, for the rest of Matthew 27. And I promise we will finish because we've got to be caught up with yesterday, Tuesday night's group. Matthew 27, verses 57 through 68. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were were there sitting opposite the tomb. Now the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, here we see that there was a rich man. It's important. You notice how the scripture says he was a rich man. There was a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea who came forward and asked for Jesus' body so he could give him a proper burial. Now, the scripture here tells us in Matthew that he was a disciple, a believer, and a follower of Jesus. But there's actually more that the scripture tells us about this guy that's pretty cool, and I can't wait to show it to you. But first off, before we go into that, what are some other things we know about Joseph from what we just read. He was rich. He was a disciple. He was from Arathia. He what? He, it was his tomb, right? His own tomb. And who was the one that rolled the stone over it? He did. Keep that in mind. All right. Go with me to Mark chapter 15, though. Let's look at Mark's account of this. Because Mark brings out something about this Joseph of Arimathea guy that may surprise you. In Mark 15, verses 42 through 47. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. Wait a minute. Does anybody know what the council is? If you don't know what the council is, put your finger in Mark 15. We're coming back to Mark 15. Go with me to Matthew 26, verse 59. Matthew 26, verse 59. It says, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Anybody know who the council is now? The Sanhedrin. The council is the Sanhedrin, which is the group of religious leaders who had all gathered together in the middle of the night to have Jesus put to death. And guess who also was there that night? Joseph of Arimathea. But you're going to see. Not only was he part of the Sanhedrin, he was also a secret believer in Jesus. And you're going to see some other things in a second. Keep reading with me. Go back to Mark 15. Look at verses 42 again and following. 
Mark 15, starting in verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Go over to Luke 23. We'll get a little more information from Luke's account. Luke 23, look at verses 50 through 56. Luke 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, he was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. Now the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandments. All right, now, now we know that Joseph was a secret believer in Jesus. He did not agree with the decision. He himself was looking for the kingdom of God. And after he was put to death, Mark puts it this way, he took courage and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you how important that is in just a second, because I can't tell you right now how important that is until I finish the story. Because there's something else that goes on here that Matthew doesn't record, only John records, which is kind of cool. But before I get to what John records about this, I want to just bring this other aspect out as well. As I was meditating on this passage and just kind of thinking about it, it hit me. Isn't it cool that God already had the burial plans for Jesus' body taken care of ahead of time? Who typically would have been the ones to take care of the burial of Jesus? Okay, but the family don't believe in him, and his mother had already been given over to John. At this point, John, Jesus' brothers think he's a nut, and they don't believe in him until later on after the resurrection. So if the family's out, who then would have been the ones to take care of the burial of his body? His disciples, what are they all doing right now? Running for their lives. They even said, well, I'm not going to let it happen. And then they run. There are some women who are watching from a distance. And thank God for them. We'll get to them in a little bit tonight. Because we wouldn't know where the body was buried, probably, unless the women were paying attention. But they don't have the ability to do anything because of the culture and what was going on. And so they're just kind of watching. But God, the Father, already had the burial plans and funeral arrangements, if you will, already set in motion. But don't think he had it just a little bit in motion ahead of time. Go with me to Isaiah 53 and you'll see he had it in plan hundreds of years, if not before the foundation of the world. It's already in motion. Go to Isaiah 53 and look at one verse, verse 9. A very familiar passage we've looked at a few times and you'll probably see it over and over as we continue. But look at Isaiah 53, look at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a what? Rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It was no accident that Matthew brought out that he was a rich man. And Mark brought out that he was a rich man. He was the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus' body was going to be dealt with by a rich man. 
and in his own tomb. That's kind of cool. Now, Joseph of Arimathea isn't alone, though, in preparing Jesus' body for burial. Other gospel writers tell us how someone else came forward and publicly showed their faith in and love, faith in and love for Jesus. Someone else, by the way, also from the religious leaders of the Jews. Go with me to John 19. You never know who's paying attention. We'll get to that in a second. Go to John 19. Look at verses 38 through 42. John 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they, both of them, took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there's a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been yet been laid. We know now it was Joseph's tomb itself, himself. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Joseph wasn't alone in coming public about his faith in Jesus. A man named Nicodemus joined with him. I'm going to take you back on a little journey of Nicodemus in just a second. But let's talk about how big of a deal this was. Now, the scripture says he was a believer, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. But you remember how Mark said he took courage and asked for the body of Jesus? I don't know if you know this yet or not. Maybe you do, but... What did the law say happened to you if you touched a dead body? You're unclean. So they would not be allowed to partake of the Passover and the Day of Atonement and all the things that are coming. Do you remember how when they're arresting Jesus and having the trial, the phony trial, the Jews wouldn't even go into the Gentile courtyards for fear of becoming unclean because they wanted to take of the Passover? This is that one festival and the feast that they've been dreaming about and excited about for the whole year. It's a biggie. The Passover, where they're washed clean by the lamb that is sacrificed. And Joseph and Nicodemus say, we don't care about any of that stuff anymore. We're not righteous by keeping the law. We believe we're righteous through this man. And by publicly going and asking for the body of Jesus and then touching it and doing what they did and putting it in the tomb, they made themselves unclean so the Jews would not let them partake of the Passover. Oh, and in more than this, they also were probably not going to be allowed to be a part of the Sanhedrin anymore. They lost all of their position and their power and their authority by coming forward in their public identification with Jesus. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Paul talks about doing the same thing. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Look at verses 4 through 9. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Paul said, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is exactly what Joseph and Nicodemus did. They counted it all rubbish that they may know Christ and have a righteousness that doesn't come from the law and ceremonial actions, but by faith alone in Jesus. Go ahead. Do you have a question? Oh, was Jesus' body really unclean? Well, again, you have to understand, we're talking in the eyes of the Jews. In, in, in the eyes of the Jews. And, and God had his reasons when God wrote that law that you weren't allowed to touch a dead body. It was because we know now there was such a thing as germs, you know, and he was actually protecting them. Because if you remember back when the Black Plague went through and all that stuff and it kept spreading, well, the reason is, is the doctors kept going from this person to a you know, dead body and then working on a healthy person and then they got dead. And then but they didn't know about germs back then. And that's why we, doctors wear rubber gloves and change gloves. But God was protecting them back then. And he said, look, if you touch a dead body, you're not going to be able to touch anybody else or be around anybody for a week. That let the disease go away. It was just a protection that he had for him. But the Jews turned it into you can't do this and you can't do that. And they these guys just simply said, I don't care about any of that stuff. I'm not going to be righteous by the Passover lamb. I'm going to be righteous by this Passover lamb. And they became public in their faith. Listen closely to me. They were believers who were secret about it. Actually, the Bible says that Joseph was. I'm going to show you when I think Nicodemus comes to faith. This is Jim's speculation, but I think it comes from Scripture. But if you don't ever become public in your faith, the Bible clearly says you're not saved. Plain and simple. Let me, let me just leave, let the Scripture speak. Go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 42 through 43. John chapter 12, verses 42 through 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, jump back with me to Matthew chapter 10. Listen to what Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Okay, I'm going to ask you guys straight up. Don't, don't let my answer be your answer. But according to what we just read in John and Matthew, if someone says, well, I'm a believer, but I'm secret and I don't want anybody to know, and they don't ever make it public, are they... Saved? No. Now you say, Jim, Peter denied him. Yeah, but Peter also was very, very public about his faith later on. We're not saying I, did, I acted like I didn't know him one time. No, no, no. This is, if you're not willing to acknowledge that you believe in Jesus Christ publicly, Jesus says your faith's not real. You're more concerned with what people think than what God thinks. And again, we've talked about this all last week. We're no longer living for this world. Remember the Hebrew writer talking about the men and women of faith, they weren't living for what was here. They were looking for what was to come. And I just want to challenge you folks. There's going to come, and it's already starting to happen, times when you may have to decide, 
Am I going to publicly acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and I'm going to follow him? Or am I going to follow man and the pressure of society? And by the way, the pressure of society is getting pretty strong. Would you not agree? Are you ready to stand and say, well, again, I can't wait till we get to the Daniel study like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When the king said, is your God able to rescue you from this fire when they wouldn't bow down to the golden statue? Their answer was, we know he's able. Whether he does or not, we don't care. We're just going to not bow down. We're not, going to, we're not worried about what you're saying. We're following God. And I just want to challenge you. You've not been baptized? That's one of the first things he says to do to identify by public profession of your faith in Jesus Christ. By the way, baptism has to come after you've been saved. But identify with Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid to let people know you believe in Jesus. Because if you, people say, well, I'm a religious person, but it's, I think it's a private thing. You heard people say that? That's, that's coming from Satan. That's coming from Satan. No, it, your faith in Jesus needs to be a public thing or it's not real. Now, let's go back and take a look at this Nicodemus guy. Go to John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 15. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless, that you do unless God is with him. Now, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't know or understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak about what we know and hear wit and witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Listen closely to what he says to Nicodemus. He says, first off, you've got to be born again or else you're not going to see the kingdom of God. In other words, he was curious. He was coming and seeking Jesus. Don't miss this. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 is very familiar to all of us. There's no one righteous, not even one. Verse 11, though, says this. No one seeks God. No one understands. No one seeks God. But John chapter 6, verse 44 says this, that no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit, the Father who sent him, draws him. And so no one out there is seeking God on their own. Well, it says in verse 45 of John 6, as it says in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. Whoever listens and learns comes to him. And so in other words, we got a world full of people that would never seek God on their own ever. But the spirit of God begins his process of drawing us. And when he does, we must respond. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever must respond, we must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Well, how do we seek him in lest he first began to seek us. And when he draws and he begins to draw you, you start to be curious of spiritual things. And Nicodemus is starting to be curious of spiritual things. For him to come to Jesus at night, he doesn't want anybody else to see that he's having this conversation with him because he's in this big group of Pharisees in Sanhedrin. But he goes, it's obvious you're from God. Something's going on here. And Jesus knows that the Father's working on Nicodemus, but he's not there yet. 
So all Jesus does is plant a little bit of seed. Gets under his skin a little bit too and says, you're Israel's teacher and you don't know these things? And then he plants this seed. Listen to what he says. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up and he'll, be draw, he'll draw a man to himself. Well, that, those words had to have stuck in his mind. Jump over with me to John chapter 7 real quick. Look at verses 40 through 52. John chapter 7, verse 40. Now, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, it's, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Now, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Now, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring him in? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that doesn't know the law is cursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. First off, they're wrong in that statement. There actually is a prophet that came from Galilee, but that's not where we're going right now. But the whole point is, Nicodemus is being drawn right now, isn't he? He's actually sticking up for Jesus. Of course, he gets attacked for doing so. This is Jim Johnson's speculation. You don't have to receive it or believe it. But I think Nicodemus became a public believer in Jesus at the crucifixion. When he saw him lifted up, I believe the spirit had led, led that seed that night there in the garden. I think it took root when all of a sudden he saw the Son of Man lifted up on the cross. And all of a sudden it made sense. Again, we don't have time to get into it. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And what was the serpent representative of? The serpent was the punishment for their sins. You remember when they sinned, God had the snake come and bite, snakes bite them. And they're all dying and Moses cries out to God and God says, make a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole and hold it up. And everyone that looks to it will, will live. In other words, the punishment for their sin was the snake. The snake was put on the pole or the cross, if you will. The punishment for their sin was put up on the cross. And if you look to it, you were saved. The punishment for our sin was Jesus. And he was put on the cross. When we look to him, we're saved. I think at that point is when Nicodemus said, I get it. And Joseph of Arimathea already was a believer, but he now decides, I don't care about that stuff anymore. And he becomes public in his faith, and he goes and asks for Pilate's body. Nicodemus says, me too, dude, I'm with you. And the two of them lost everything, but gained everything. We also need to point out that as the disciples were scattered, there were some women who had been lovingly watching all this that happened to Jesus and following to see what would happen to his body and where. Go back to Matthew 27. Look at verses 55 through 61. Matthew 27, verses 55 through 61. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to, to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother, mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Jump over to Mark 15. Look at verses 40 through 47. 
There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and the younger of Joseph, Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there also were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Again, for the sake of time, I could take you to Luke's account in Luke 23, verses 55 through 56. It lists some more and talks about these women. First off, thank God for these ladies and their willingness to not be like the rest of the disciples of the guys who all took off. They stay at a distance and they follow and they see where he's laid and they pay attention and they're making their plans to come back and take care of him. I, I'm not sure Peter and John would have known where to run on Resurrection Day if the women hadn't seen where he was laid. But I want to go somewhere with this and I want you to see something. Please hear what I'm about to tell you and you need to hear it very, very clearly. In God's eyes, men and women are equal. There's a lot of times that people try to, and Satan tries to make you think that men are more valuable in the eyes of God than women. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. But just because men and women are equal in the eyes of God and have equal value in the eyes of God, doesn't mean men and women have the same roles. See, a lot of people say, well, if we're equal, then we can do whatever we want or can do it. No, 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 that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches very clearly that, that Jesus, when he chose his apostles, only chose men. The scripture teaches that women are not to be in authority in churches as pastors in authority. It doesn't mean that women don't have value. Actually, let me take you back with me to Luke 8, chapter 8. You may find something out about these women that you didn't even know is going to blow your mind. Go to Luke chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 3. In Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. It said, soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own means. Who was bankrolling the ministry of Jesus and his disciples? The women! Doesn't that blow your mind a little bit? By the way, you know the Bible says that Paul was trying to go into Asia in Acts 16, but the Spirit wouldn't let him. Then he tried to go into Mysia, but the Spirit said no. And later that night he had a dream of a man of Macedonia saying, come and preach the gospel to us. So he goes and he realizes this is where God wants him to go. So he goes into Macedonia. He starts looking for where God's drawing people. He finds some women down there at a place of prayer. And the first convert in Europe was a woman named Lydia, who was a seller of purple. And if you don't know what I mean by that, the scripture said she was a seller of purple. She had to be a wealthy lady because purple cloth was extremely rare and extremely expensive. And if she's a seller of purple, she's a rich lady. And the church starts in her house. Folks, men and women are equal in the eyes of God. That's why Galatians says in, in Christ there's no male or female. But don't let that truth move you into then men and women can do the same thing in God's design of roles. No, there's a difference, and that's, it's okay. Even those of us who have been given authority, not only as a man, but as a teacher and a preacher, I'm still under authority. I can't go beyond what my authority is. And people have said over the years, well, Jim, the only reason that Jesus didn't choose women to be the apostles is the culture of his day wouldn't let him do that. I'll say, hang on for a second. You don't want to go any further. Did you just really say that Jesus Christ was manipulated by the culture of his day? Folks, if you study the scriptures, Jesus went against the culture of his day. 
They wouldn't even talk to women in public. They wouldn't especially talk to Samaritan women in public. And Jesus went out of his way to go talk to a Samaritan woman. Jesus broke the culture of his day. He wasn't living for the culture of his day. But in God's design, there are roles for men and roles for women. And the sooner we're happy, are willing to just acknowledge that that is, and it has nothing to do with equal value in the eyes of God, I love the fact that all through scriptures we see the women being elevated. Don't take it beyond God's design. Now, last thing I want to point out is in Matthew chapter uh, 27, verses 62 through 66. As I was meditating on this passage, something else jumped out at me that I never saw. In Matthew 27, verse 62, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Wait a minute. Is that what they said during the trial? What did they accuse him of saying in the trial? In three days he would rebuild, he would tear the temple down, and in three days he would rebuild the temple. Sounds like they knew exactly what he was saying. You know what's interesting? They knew what he was saying, but his own disciples didn't. Go with me real quickly to John chapter 2. Look at John chapter 2, verse 13. John chapter 2, verse 13 this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and then they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So when did the disciples figure out that he was talking about rising from the dead in three days? After his resurrection. But before his resurrection, the people that didn't believe in him had their eyes open to what he was saying. Let me say something to you, and I want you to hear me. Now, maybe it isn't for people in this room. I pray it isn't. Maybe it's for someone that's listening online right now. Everybody has God's truth revealed to them in some measure. No one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws them first. But as it says in the prophets, you all will be taught by God. Whoever listens and learns comes to the Father. That's why the Bible is very, very clear that those who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have had their eyes open to the truth, but have rejected Jesus Christ are really in for it because you're trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant that sanctifies you. Folks, let me say something to you. The Jews who said we don't believe knew exactly what he was saying. They just chose to reject it. And again, like we've seen tonight in our study, don't ever assume you know whether or not your neighbor or your family member or whoever is really going to respond. Sometimes those who are revolting the loudest are the ones that are getting worked on the hardest by the Holy Spirit. And here we have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who actually, the whole time this was all going on, God was working on them and they became public. I've learned over the years not to assume that I know who's going to believe and who doesn't. 
That's not my call. My job is to just share the truth and believe that God's powerful and is able to get his work done. So they come, to, they come to Pilate and they said, look, he said he would rise three days later. Could you give us permission to have a Roman guard come and seal the tomb so that they don't come and steal his body? Pilate says, make it as secure as you want. I wonder what he meant by that. I wish I could have heard the tone. I wonder if, remember Pilate knew some, there was something supernatural about this guy. I wonder if he said, yeah, knock yourself out. See what you can do. But they got a Roman guard and they put this seal on the tomb that if anybody broke the seal of the tomb, they're in trouble with the law of Rome. And they made it as secure as they could. And here's the thought that we're going to close with. As I looked at that, my brain went this way. Isn't that cool that the religious leaders are now asking more witnesses to be there for what's about to happen next? They think they're going to be stopping it. All they did was add some more people to the group of folks that are going to witness the resurrection. And that's where we're going next week. I love you. We'll see you. Thanks for coming.